Amen. You can go ahead and find your seat as the oldest group of freshwater kids is making their way out of the room this morning. Um, and uh, yeah, good, good group of kids. Praise God. For the rest of us, we can take our copy of God's Word and we can turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, as we today answer the question, why do we care? Why do we care? That's going to be page 1 in your pew Bible if you've got one of those close to you. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. I'm Joshua. I'm the lead pastor here at Freshwater. Our mission as a church is to help the people of our community and world become totally committed followers of Jesus Christ. If I have not yet met you, I would love to meet you before you leave for the day. I stand at the back door and I'd love for you to say hi before you leave. If you were here the first week of January, you heard me introduce our January sermon series. Um, if you're new here, know that we generally, normally, we work through books of the Bible, but in January, we kind of spend it doing something a little bit different than what we um, normally do. Here at Freshwater, we always take January, and we spend January just kind of refocusing the church toward the things that are important for us as a church, really refocusing toward the mission. So, so far in the last three years, we've always spent this month just kind of focusing on church health and answering some really practical issues and practical questions that are pertinent in the day-to-day life of the church. So this January, as you can see, our series is titled Church, the Fundamentals. And every week we are spending our time together talking about something that we always do on Sunday morning. So, so far in this series, uh, we've talked about why we sing, we've talked about why we give, Next week, when we come back, we're going to answer the question, why do we serve? But this week, we ask the question, why do we care? Why do we care about one another? And in the same token, why do we care about people who have not yet became followers of Christ? With that in mind, there has never been an event that led to the loss of more lives in this country than what occurred 44 years ago in January of 1973. Just for comparison so that we understand how big of a deal it is, listen to this list. 3,000 lives were lost on 9-11. 58,000 American lives were lost in the Vietnam War. 54,000 American lives were lost in the Korean War. As many as 225,000 Japanese lives were lost when we dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to effectively end World War II. 405,000 American lives were lost in World War II. 750,000 American lives were lost during the Civil War. But since 1973, between 59 and 60 million babies have been lost to abortion. 60 million. That's 20,000 times the number lost on 9-11. That's 262 times the number lost by two nuclear bombs being dropped on Japan. That's 79 times the number lost in the Civil War. 59 million, 60 million, that is an astronomical number. It's an almost inconceivable number in and of itself. It's difficult for us to even begin to wrap our minds around 
Now, there's a lot that we could say about abortion, a lot that I could say about abortion. I could say much about how I think Christians have unfortunately demonized women that get abortions while giving the men that pressure them into having abortions and provide no support for the women. We kind of give them a pass, which I think is absolutely unacceptable. I personally think one of the most effective ways that we could ever hinder the number of aborted babies is to raise our boys to be men of character and who love Jesus and who want to um, uh, abstain from sex until marriage and who support the women that God gives us so that those women never feel like they're without hope. But nevertheless, what I want to ask you this morning is not necessarily just about abortion, although that is definitely an issue, especially in the month of January. It's not just necessarily about any social issue or any human rights violation. I want to ask the question, why do we even care? Why do we care about 59 million babies. I mean, those are, in many cases, children that we don't know. The vast majority of them are children that we weren't related to. So why don't we as Christians just simply take the stance that so many people around us take and that, you know, as long as it doesn't hurt me, as long as it doesn't have a direct impact on me, you know, do whatever you want, as long as you kind of leave it in your own life. Why do we care? Why do we care about injustices that happen in other parts of the world that we're never even going to visit? Why do you care about the care point that we're going to be a part of in Guatemala as we partner with Children's Hope Chest? Why did so many of you sacrifice your money and your vacation time to travel with us to southern Mexico to help us plant a church in the small town of Tepeca? Why do you give sacrificially to the ministry of the church? Why do you pray for your neighbors and your co-workers? Why do you spend your time making disciples of our children back in freshwater kids? Why not just sleep in? Why not just worry about yourself? Why not just mind your own business and not concern yourself with other people? Why, really, why do you, as a Christian, why do you actually care about other people? Well, you don't have to get very far in the Bible to get an answer for that question from God. The Bible opens with God creating everything that exists in six days. He, of course, rests on that seventh day. The first day, God creates earth, space, time, and light. The second day, he creates the atmosphere. The third day, he creates dry land and plants. The fourth day was the sun, the moon, and the stars. The fifth day was the sea and flying creatures. And then on the sixth day, he begins by creating land animals. But then after that, he creates really what is the pinnacle of God's creation, that pinnacle being you, when God creates mankind. And when God created mankind, you may not have ever thought about it like this, but God, when he created man, gives you all the reason that you need to care about the unborn, to care about your neighbor, to care about your co-worker, to care about the children that God has entrusted into our care, to just care. It is all right there in the very first page of the Bible. So my goal this morning is very simple. I want to convince you that it is absolutely right and honorable for us to be deeply concerned with the well-being of other people. You should feel that. It's not that you're being necessarily nosy. It's not that you're concerning yourself with other people's business. It's that hopefully you're simply reflecting the same view on creation and on mankind that God reflects in the creation account. So why do we care? We're going to see three reasons 
in this text that we care. Here's the first reason, and if you've never been here before, I'm going to give you the reason. We're going to work through the sermon outline. If you're doing the fill-in thing, the senior worship guide, which you should have received when you walked in this morning, I'm going to give you that reason, and we're going to talk about some Scripture. I'm going to give you the second reason, we're going to talk about Scripture. So you can keep your Bibles open on your lap as we're going to keep going back to the Word. So here's the first reason we care. We care because all people are image bearers of God. That's your first blank. We care because all people are image bearers of God. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We're just going to look at that first half of the verse for now. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Stop right there for just a minute. By the way, when God says, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, you might be tempted to say, What is us? Why is that plural? Like, there's only one true God. What's going on here? Well, us is referring to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And if we were to read the entire Bible, we'd find out that that all of God is absolutely present in the creation account. All of those three persons existing in one God. But when God gets to creating man, he says that man is going to be different than all his other creation because we are the only part of his creation that's said to bear his image. Now, what does it mean to say that we bear God's image. Like, have you ever asked yourself that? Like, yeah, we bear, we bear God's image. You bear God's image. But what does that even mean? Like, what does that even imply? What is that getting at? Well, let me tell you a couple things that it's not talking about. It's not anything physical. So this is not saying that you physically look like God the Father, and we know that that's not it because God the Father is spirit. He's not confined to a human body. Some people have said that the image of God refers to our ability to reason, whereas we are set apart from all the animals created on the sixth day because we can comprehend morality and logic and reason, and we can love art, and we can have a capacity for relationships governed by honor and loyalty and commitment and love. Some people say that that's what the image of God means. So there are a lot of theories as to what exactly this is getting at, but the one that has most resonated with me, and maybe the one that kind of overarches all, over all the rest, is a cultural one. And a lot of scholars will point out how the idea in the ancient Middle East was that the king of a land was the visible representative of the deity of that country. So, for example, when you looked at the king you were seeing a representative of whatever god that that nation worshipped. When you looked at the king, you were supposed to be reminded of the god that they worshipped. This seems to go nicely with verse 28, if you skip down to verse 28. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves all of the earth. So God was taking mankind, and he was giving mankind authority over creation, and as a result, just like a king that has been given authority over a nation, when you look at another person, you should be reminded that they represent God. They represent God. That includes the baby still in the womb. That includes the drug addict. That includes the middle-class state worker, which is about three-quarters of you. That includes the child in Guatemala. That includes all of us. When you see them, when you look at them, you are looking at something that should remind you that there is a creator, that there is a God behind this person. Now, there's no doubt that at least in my mind, in my opinion, by and large, this does not always happen for us, does it? I mean, you might see a newborn baby or you might see one of these 
uh, beautiful children that God has blessed our church with, and you might respond to that in worship and just thanking God for everything that he's done because of how pure they seem to be. But most of us don't immediately think about the image of God when we see someone begging for money on the corner. Do we? We don't. Most of us don't immediately think that individual bears the image of God when we see some face splashed up on the TV screen for some crime that they've just committed. It's not how our mind works. Something about the way that we think about the image of God in an individual has been, I believe, largely lost. It's been largely ignored. I mean, I'll give you an example from my life, um, just from the news recently. Dylan Roof is the young man who, in June 2015, walked into the Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and he began shooting people for one reason, simply because they were black. Only reason, just because... They were black. So his trial just recently ended. If you watched that trial, and he was sentenced to death, and he's going to be on death row for probably quite some time before he's actually executed. And maybe you kept up with the trial. If you didn't, I'll just tell you that as he spoke and as he shared, there was no remorse whatsoever. There was no apology. There was no interest in reconciliation. I mean, you listen to this guy, and you think, this has got to be just about as close to pure evil As it gets. And I'll admit that I would see his picture on the TV and I would feel anger toward him. And maybe that was a righteous anger, I don't know. But I never once caught myself thinking that this is an individual that was designed to display God's glory and that still bears the image of God. Even after all the horrible things that he's done, absolutely wretched things that he has taken part of, it might be horribly distorted. It might be repressed, it might be broken in some way by sin, but still, still, the image of our Creator is in Dylan Roof. I want you to consider that one of the main reasons that we care about people is because every person that God has ever created, when you look into the eyes of someone else, you are looking into the eyes of someone that was was designed to represent and point people toward the God that we worship. Every single person, no exception. Now, unfortunately, all people, they haven't accepted that design, have they? And since they haven't accepted that design, we have the second reason that we care. Because as we just continue through the text, the first reason we care is because all people are image bearers of God. Now, the second reason that we care is because all people have a purpose. All people have a purpose. Even Dylan Roof has a purpose. And we should pray that in prison, some Somebody, a prisoner or a chaplain or something, would share the purpose that God has even with Dylan Roof. Because look with me now how verse 26 picks up. It says, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now here's what verse 26 is telling us. God is saying about mankind that we are going to have dominion over his creation. We're in charge of it. The fish, the birds, the livestock, everything that creeps on the earth, all of that. um, We've been entrusted with the calling to take care of it. That's very clear. You see this continue in chapter 2 when Adam is told to take care of the garden. You also see it in chapter 2 where Adam is given the job of naming all of the animals. And I'm not bringing this up just to make the point that we as image bearers of God have the responsibility and the honor of caring for everything that God has created, although that is absolutely true. I bring it up because this is the first point in the Bible where we discover that mankind is not designed to just be floating out here in life with no 
plan, no purpose, nothing to do, no meaning, no motivation, no commitment, no aspiration in life. That's not how God designed mankind to function and to operate on the first page of the Bible. And I would add that that's not how God wants us to operate today. No, instead, God has a very clear will for every single one of us. His desire for you and his desire for every single person that you know, every single person that you could ever meet, is that they would repent and that they would believe, that they would begin following Jesus Christ. Creation and God showing his will for Adam and Eve at that point to just work in the garden and take care of creation was just the beginning of God revealing what he desired for mankind, that every single one of us would place glory on him, And that we enjoy his presence in our life forever. That's what he has always desired for every single person. Now you might say, well, okay, preacher, I agree with you. I agree that I have been designed by God with a purpose. My purpose is to glorify God and enjoy his presence in my life forever. I admit that. I agree with that. But what does that have to do with me caring for other people? Like, what does God's will for me have to do with me caring for others? Can't I just kind of carry on in my own life and do my best to live my life to the glory of God and kind of, you know, kind of be done with it from that point over? Isn't that okay? Isn't that enough? Well, to answer that question, uh, think about for a second a toy that I'm pretty sure every young child gets at one point in their life. Here's what it looks like. Um, Sometimes it's designed a little bit differently, but generally it's kind of shaped like a ball, like a soccer ball, except for it's got flat surfaces on every side. And then on every flat surface, it, always, it also has a hole that's cut out in a particular shape. So it might have a hole like a triangle or a star or a square or whatever. And then it comes with these blocks that are shaped like those shapes, like those holes. So the kid has to find the block that um, will go through the hole, will go through that shape, and I guess the toy is designed to um, teach them their shapes. I don't know. I guess that's right. And I cringe, I seriously cringe every time I see one of these open at a Christmas present or as a birthday party. And here's why. Because generally, when the kid starts playing with it, they're young enough that they don't have any idea how it works. They don't understand the round block goes in the round hole. The square block goes in the square hole. The star block goes in the star hole. So they will take a square block and they will set their eyes on a triangle hole and they'll try and they'll try and they'll try to push it through and they'll eventually get frustrated and they'll start bawling or they'll start throwing something. And then the parents in the room, they're all trying to teach. They want their kid to be the best, the the smartest kid in the world. So they're all trying to teach their kid and the kid doesn't know what's going on. They don't know what a star is. They don't know what a circle is. They haven't been introduced to the wonderful shape of a rhombus, have they? So what happens is is they just end up getting mad. Something gets thrown. I'm telling you, I've never seen it go well. Maybe you have, but I never have. Well, think about this in verse 26. If God, if God, admit this, if God really does have a purpose for every single purpose, for every single person, And if that purpose is to glorify him and to enjoy his presence in their life forever, that means that every single person that is going through life without that purpose is, spiritually speaking, they're trying to take a square block and they're trying to shove it through a round hole. They're trying to accomplish something that in and of itself cannot possibly be accomplished. This is why people are burnt out. This is why people are depressed. This is why people wonder why they were created. 
And this is why, by the way, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are ambassadors for Christ, is what he says. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, friends, one of the reasons we care, one of the reasons that we are ambassadors for the Lord, begging people to be reconciled to God through faith and repentance, is is because we believe that God has given every one of us a glorious purpose. His desire is for us to, what? Repent, believe. To enjoy his presence in our life forever. And the only way that a person can discover that purpose is if we will be the individual that cares enough about them to share that purpose with them. So we care because all people are image bearers of God. We care because all people, every single person that you've ever, had, you've ever met has a purpose. And now the third reason we care, we care because all people need community. They need community. Because look now at verse 27, the very next verse. What does it say in your copy of God's word? It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, right off the bat, you might say, well, that verse just kind of summarizes everything that we've seen so far and just kind of summarizes everything that you just talked about in verse 26, and it doesn't really add anything to it. But it does actually add something significant. Because think about the verse again. Not only is man created in the image of God, but God created mankind, what, both Male and female. And when God says here in this opening chapter of the Bible that he has created us male and female, he is giving us a picture of how we need each other. He's giving us a picture of community. Now before I explain that from the text, let me just say that gender is very much misunderstood today, isn't it? I mean, we're on the brink of genderless bathrooms all across the country, and maybe you saw on the cover of National Geographic two weeks ago, um, you know, the, the elementary-aged boy who is convinced that he's a girl and the parents are dressing him in pink clothes and pink hair and fingernail polish and toenail polish and all of this stuff. And the, the things that society at large now is questioning, these are things that seem insane to many of us. They sure seem insane to my parents and especially my grandparents' generation. So l- if we can't agree on anything else, if we have a high view of the Bible, let's just agree first and foremost that God created gender. God created them both male and female. But here's what this is a picture, and here's how this is a picture of community. God created male and female. That's obvious from verse 27. And then in the very next verse, verse 28, the verse that we just got done reading a couple minutes ago, he gives mankind a command to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. That means God is giving them a command to make and have babies. And the only way that they can obey that command is if they're brought together rather than separated. Male and female. Coming together, community. Now, this is not stating that if you're single and you don't have children or if you're married and you're unable to conceive, this doesn't mean that you're being disobedient to this or that you're some kind of a subpar Christian. Absolutely does not mean that. But it is beginning to show, once again, this pattern that develops over the entire course of God's Word that whether you're married or single or whatever, you were not designed to be alone. You were not designed to be alone. Now, that doesn't mean... That, that everybody's going to get married in life, or it doesn't mean it, your, your, your lack of aloneness may come in significant friendships or in your life group or in your church or whatever, but we were not designed to be alone. I mean, I think about one of the, the, what they call one of the greatest English works of all time, Robinson Crusoe. If you've read that book, um, 
What is it? It's about a, an Englishman who his dad wants him to become a clergyman, but he doesn't want to do that, and he decides that he's going to live his life at sea. So um, soon enough in the book, there's a, a wreck. He crashes his boat just off of some island close to the New World, and with only the supplies he savaged from the wreck of his ship, he managed to build a house and a boat and something of a life for himself. But despite living in a beautiful location, Crusoe was never truly happy in his setting. And he wasn't, he didn't have a lack of happiness because of the food. He didn't have a lack of happiness because of the weather. He didn't have a lack of happiness because he just didn't like the beach life. And, you know, he's always mad when he tracked sand in the house. It wasn't anything like that. It was that he was alone. He was alone. Listen to what he said. He said in that book, I am cast upon a horrible desolate island, void of all hope of recovery. I'm singled out and separated, as it were, from all the world to be miserable. I'm divided from mankind, a solitaire, one banished from human society. I have no soul to speak to or to relieve me. The plight of Robinson Crusoe was that he had no community. He was all alone. If you've seen Castaway, which is basically the modern retelling of Robinson Crusoe, why was that island so difficult and depressing? Why is Tom Hanks spending the majority of the movie talking to a volleyball named Wilson? Why? Because he needed community. If you've seen the movie I Am Legend with Will Smith, zombie apocalypse post-zombie apocalypse movie, why is that movie so weird if you've seen that? Given zombies are weird, I admit. Zombies are pretty weird. But the images of New York City, one of the biggest cities in the whole world, where Will Smith is the only person left, those are chilling images. Life of Pi, the movie, the boat, the dude is on the boat, and the tiger is on it. And I thought, how could that be a good movie? That's got to be a stupid movie. It was actually a really good movie. You should watch that movie. But think about it. He's at sea for how long? And he's all by himself. He's alone. So it seems that even Hollywood understands that we were made to experience life with other people. Your life is going to be better if you're experiencing it with friends, a spouse, your life group, your church, whatever. Now, just in case you didn't know, maybe you're new here and maybe you even came in late where you missed um, Luke's spiel where he talked about life groups. Um, There are two ways that we really look at um, and focus on experiencing community here at Freshwater. And by the way, this event, this gathering that you find yourself in right now is not one of those um, ways that we experience community because we come in on Sunday mornings, we have shallow talk, we talk about the weather or something else that is really insignificant. There's no real life change as far as happening with other people in this Sunday morning gathering. So we understand that, we know that, and that's why um, the two ways that we emphasize community here at Freshwater. First of all, life groups, which Luke told you about. Our life groups are small groups of people meeting throughout Jefferson City and really the surrounding areas, doing life together, praying for one another, reading the scriptures together. They meet on a weekly basis. Those are open. Every single one of them is open. You can look on the list or talk with Luke, and he'll help to find you into a life group. And then the second way that we really experience community is through um, two different um, gender-specific ministries that we have, one being called Act Like Men, 
and one being called Wellspring. And by the way, both of those are getting ready to launch in February, the first week of February. February 7th is Act Like Men, and Wellspring is February 6th. And what those are is they come together, the men one night and the, and the women one night, they come together for a big group meeting, and then they disperse into small groups of three or four people, something like that, and they meet on a regular basis throughout the semester, not forever, throughout the semester to study God's Word, pray for one another, and experience community. So I would just encourage you that if that gets after you and you feel like you want to grow significantly and get to know people, those are the two avenues that we would encourage you in. So let's pause there and let's just take a second and let's briefly review what we've seen this morning. We're in the creation account. We're on the sixth day of creation. God creates mankind. And we see in the creation account why it is good and just and honorable that we care for one another. First, because all people are image bearers of God says that right off the bat in verse 26, that first half of verse 26. Second, because all people have a purpose, or the second half of verse 26, that becomes clear as well. And then lastly, because all people need community, where in verse 27, um, God is most immediately pointing toward the picture of community through a husband and a wife coming together and procreating. But it's not just that picture in the course of God's word. It may be with a spouse, it may be friends, life group, um, wellspring, act like men, whatever. Now, let's ask the question, so what? So what? Big hairy deal, you know? What does any of this matter? Yeah, we care, but what do we do about it? How do we respond? How does the way that we think about caring really need to change so that we can do more than just care in our heads? Like, for example, um, I read recently that, you know when your laptop or your computer pops up with one of those um, warnings that says, hey, you need to update this software, you need to do whatever, this thing's out of date, or some security deal or whatever, Google claims that 90% of those are ignored. 90%. 90%. On my computer, it's 100%. Never, never do any of that stuff. It's a disaster. But we don't want to be like that when it comes to caring. You know, we don't want to um, just ignore people. We want to shun and fight against and kick against the temptation that you and I have to care intellectually, just to just care intellectually. So, so maybe what's the next step? What are some ways that we need to think about caring that can kind of cause our caring about others to... Grow arms and legs. So let me give you, I'm going to give you four ways, four ways this, this can change the way that we think about caring. These are all listed in your sermon outline. I'll go through these pretty quick. Number one, we need not be ashamed because we care about the well-being of other people. We need not be ashamed because we care about the well-being of other people. You should be proud. You are reflecting When you care about someone, when you care about any of those things that we've already talked about or so many others that I haven't even touched on, that is, that might be, maybe a result of you just being nosy, but it may very well be a result of you actually wanting to reflect in your life the same view of people that God has. So it is honorable, it is noble to mourn with aborted children. It is noble to hate all injustices. It is noble to despise suffering. It is noble to be relentless in sharing the gospel. You need not be ashamed because you care about other people. Number two, we need not hesitate to protest injustice. We need not hesitate to protest injustice. Caring just simply in an intellectual way, it's hard to convince someone that that's really caring. We would claim that, look, your faith is going to work its way out into your life. 
You know, so it's completely appropriate. We need not hesitate to protest injustice. Number three, we need not shy away from controversial subjects. We need not shy away from controversial subjects. Caring about people includes sometimes asking hard questions, doesn't it? Caring about people sometimes includes looking somebody in the eyes and bringing up a, a subject or an issue that you know that they're having problems with. And, and by the way, allowing them to do that to you so that we can all become more like Christ. Number four, number four, in all of this, we need not avoid the gospel. As a matter of fact, the gospel, the good news that Christ has been crucified and raised from the grave is the ultimate sign that you care for someone, isn't it? I mean, it's, it doesn't really do any good to, to help someone provide for temporal needs, put food in their belly, or you know, help them through this event or whatever, only to allow them to perish and spend eternity separated from God. That's not anything we want. So show, you want to show the ultimate care that you have for someone, share the gospel with them, share about what Christ has done for them. And that not only goes for you sharing it with other people, but it goes for me sharing it with you as well. So we be, here's what we believe. We believe that Jesus came, that he didn't just come and hang out and do some miracles, but that he came ultimately to head to the cross. When he head to the cross and when he, when he was hung on that cross, God was taking his wrath that was due you and me for our sin and our rebellion, and he was placing it on Jesus. When Jesus went to the grave and on the third day rose from the grave, he was conquering death so that you and I, when we repent and when we believe, when we begin following Christ, we can be reconciled to God and God can now look down at us and God the Father can say, I no longer see their sin, I no longer see their lust, their addictions, their hatred, their heart condition, their laziness, their apathy. I no longer see any of that. All I see is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ because Jesus took all of that away. He cast it as far as the east is from the west. So my encouragement to you is the same encouragement that I give you every week. It is simply to repent and believe. Now, there are three ways that, that, that you can respond this morning to that invitation. The first way is just simply to come back and talk to me during this next song. So I stand at the Connect table located there in the foyer, and if you want to step out during the next song that we sing, come back and talk with me about what it looks like to follow Christ. I'd love to, to share that information with you. The second way is on your Connect card. So when you received your worship guide this morning, um, on the edge of that is what we call a Connect card, and you can peel that off and... Um, You can mark that bubble at the top that says, I've decided to follow Jesus, and we will contact you about what that looks like very soon. And then the third way is at the back door on your way out. So just like I said earlier, I stand back there after the service and would love to talk with you. You can just reach out and say, Josh, I want to be a Christian, or I at least want to hear more about what this looks like, and I would love to share that with you. So I'll pray for us, and then after I pray, we're going to stand and we're going to sing again. Heavenly Father and Lord, we're thankful, God, for all that you are and all that you do for us. And I'm thankful, Lord, that we can look at um, just really two verses this morning and we can see that it is so applicable and that it has so much to say to us about us. Lord, this is, this is a good news. This is a, a good thing. And, uh, Lord, my prayer is that you'd continue to work in our hearts and in our lives and as we Um, sing to you as we continue to sing and to worship, and then later as we give, my prayer is that you would be honored for all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.